Welcome to part two of our JR Cigar Countries of Origin Countries series. Cigar Origins of Countries. This is how countries, the origins of countries. This is how the countries, there was Pangea and then it broke off into at least what? 10 countries. There's a, there's a lot now. There's a lot of countries. There's like at least 10 to 15 Too countries. Many. So we're starting to see that you guys enjoyed our episode on the history of Dominican cigars. So we'd figure we turn this into a series and we're going to do today the history of Nicaraguan cigars. And then Justin's going to play some kind of music, do some kind of music. Some kind Hopefully of Nicaraguan the, music. The theme music to Jurassic Park or something. Yeah. Is something that to similar. place in Nicaragua? Something. It was Costa Rica. Was it off the coast of Costa Rica? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I'm here with my partner in crime, Christopher. Secret Christopher. Secret Christopher. That's you in a tuxedo. Yeah. That was you at your wedding. Was yeah, Secret so Christopher. Secret Christopher at my wedding. Yeah. Everywhere, everywhere else, I'm Secret Chris. Um, so, Secret Christopher. Let's talk about what we're smoking first in honor of Nicaraguan cigars. I went with the Aganorsa Rare Leaf Reserve, which is a Nicaraguan smoke, um, utilizing the rarest of their leaves, hence the name. Uh, Aganorsa, I feel like, is the Nicaraguan company of the future. I mean, of the present, of course, but also of the future. They are really on the cutting edge of, you know, wrapper varieties and blending, and they're really expanding their growing operation. So I feel like they are a good look into the future of Nicaraguan cigars. And I'm smoking the La Coalition from Crown Heads, um, which the country of origin of this smoke is Nicaragua um, and has Nicaraguan fillers and is made up of other other uh, tobaccos throughout. Broadleaf broad wrapper, right? Yeah, Connecticut yeah, Broadleaf wrapper, Sumatran binder. Um, but yeah, I kind of went with a, a cigar that... Chris, talk in the, talk in the documentary. Talk in the documentary. Yeah, I went, I went with the La Coalition. No, don't be sexy. It's, just talk in the documentary voice. It's one of my favorite voices. Voices, <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's I love one of my favorite a, I love cigars. a good sexy voice. <laughs> it was one of my favorite favorite cigars I you know first started smoking when I was here. And I feel like... Um, would Crown, does Crown Heads utilize a lot of tobacco from Nicaragua? They're mostly Nicaraguan. They're mo yeah, mostly I figured. Nicaraguan. I figured. Um, but I, just everyone, to treat, I haven't had yeah. this in a while. So. Everyone these days is mostly Nicaraguan. Why is that, though? Is it? We're about to, to find to out. So come with us on, on this journey. journey as we head down through the southern United States, through Mexico, through Panama? No, Panama is after. So between other countries that are between Mexico and Nicaragua, which if I had to look at a map, uh, Honduras is north of Nicaragua. I know that. We have to go through Honduras. So a little bit of history. It's very complicated history, so I don't want to get too deep into the weeds on this. But Paleo-Americans first inhabited the area known as Nicaragua, dating back to 12,000 BCE, before Chris even. Evans, Chris Evans. Before Chris Evans. 12,000 years before Chris Evans. Yep. People started inhabiting Nicaragua. I, I can't imagine a time before Chris Evans. Not neither can I. Right, so I don't even know what that was like. Um, I want to get a little bit in here. Uh, there were the indigenous peoples at, by, the, by the 15th century after Chris Evans. After Chris Evans. <laughs> yeah, AC. Uh, AC. Um, 
very similar culture of the the Mesoamerican people who lived there were related to the Aztecs and the Mayans. They had a similar language, similar culture. Um, obviously, the Spanish came in. They did their whole thing. We don't have to get into that. Unfortunately, it was probably a lot of a lot of bad stuff. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of nonsense that those Spanish did in uh, in the, the area. But by 1821, the uh, Captaincy General of Guatemala, which I'm assuming was like this kind of general area that was ruled that encompasses many modern day countries in Central and South America. And it, um, but after that, it became part of the first Mexican empire. In 1823, uh, after the overthrow of the Mexican monarchy in March, Nicaragua joined the newly formed United Provinces of Central America. Um, but then it became its own independent country in 1838. During the early 20th century, the U.S. actually had a pretty big foothold in Nicaragua due to, you know, trying to stabilize governments. And they were against this, which is a kind of a common theme of America involving itself in Nicaraguan politics. So it was actually kind of occupied by the Americans um, through the 1930s. The U.S. Marines had popped in there pretty regularly. Um, actually, there's some pretty famous... Uh, former World War I soldiers who won the Medal of Honor for doing stuff in Nicaragua. Um, after that, uh, so as we're heading into the late 20s, um, the famous Somoza family, which anyone who is familiar with Nicaragua probably knows, it's like this dynasty of, I don't want to say dictators. Again, I don't want to pick a side here because there's some people who are very still loyal to them. Um, they ruled... Uh, like li literally like a family, like like one guy ruled and his son and then like a nephew, but he was still under the control of the main family, the Somozas. Um, throughout the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, um, during the 1940s, they actually declared war on the Axis powers. So they, I don't know how many troops they sent, but they joined us in declaring war on the Axis powers. Then there was the Sandinista uh, revolution in the late 1970s. They took power in 1979. Um, prompting a mass exodus of many Nicaraguan uh, landowners, the middle class, the wealthy, they kind of all left because that's what the wealthy do when there's a socialist or communist uprising is those are the first people they come after. So they all left. Um, the Sandinista time, which we'll get into later, is very important in the history of the cigar industry in Nicaragua. And feel free to stop me if you have any questions or anything. You well, I was going to ask if, I know you said you're going to visit that later, but why is, why is the Sandinista so prevalent or important to the, to Nicaragua? Very, very similarly to why the, the Castro revolution is oh, important okay. to Cuban, right. Cuban Why is history. it not talked about like, or why is that not because talked there's, about a lot? I feel like the Castro, like, administrate, or like that time. There was know, a, like such Cuba a, there such was a, a wider impact and an unbalancing of world forces uh, because of the Cuban Revolution. It was, you know, the Cold War. You know, communism had literally arrived at our doorstep. The Cuban Missile Crisis did not alleviate those concerns. In fact, they made them worse. Plus, there was a lot of American businessmen. Some of them might be mafios, you know, my, my relatives, who were involved in very lucrative deals in Cuba that during the revolution all went you know, there was a lot of American involvement in Cuba prior to the revolution. They backed up the dictator there. I can't remember his name. Uh, I think it was Batista. or Yeah, I think it was Batista. Um, and again, it, it, this is during, you know, right after McCarthy, during McCarthyism, right after McCarthyism, the Red Scare of, the, of the, the 1950s. We just fought in Korea. We're about to fight in Vietnam. So having a, a communist nation 90 miles away 
um, an important one too. Uh, just did not sit well. So it, it was it was more of a global crisis by the late seventies. I'm not saying the Russians were were not as prevalent; they still were. I mean, look at Reagan during the eighties, but during the late nineteen seventies. I just feel like the global impact of a country falling to communism wasn't seen in the same vein. And unfortunately, to the people of Nicaragua, um, I, I think the American government at the time didn't. They were still important. They, there was the whole Iran-Contra affair with Reagan. He got involved and tried to overthrow the Sandinista government. Um, you know, it was a whole thing. But I feel like the global impact of the Cuban Revolution was just it was it was more widely felt. Um, but yeah, so Reagan was not a fan. Uh, there was a lot of stuff I'm not going to get into about that. The Somozas eventually fled. There was some aid and then to, that was given to, uh, to Nicaragua of uh, these Contras who were like these rebels and they were trying to form a new government. Bunch of a back and forth. Um, I guess technically the Sandinistas still hold power. They, they do have elections. There was some unrest in 2018, um, which was not great uh, a lot of uh journalists and acad- you know, academic places were were shut down and you know it, it just wasn't a good situation there i think it's calmed down now i have to talk to somebody who's a little more involved in uh sorry in nicaraguan politics to see but that's kind of just a short short history of the country very very short and i'm probably missing a lot of stuff and i've probably made a lot of mistakes but that's kind of what we're uh, what we're aiming for. So, how do cigars play into this? Well, Christopher, 1959, Cuban Revolution. Uh, so, there's 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 two big dates in cigar history when it comes to the revolution. There's 1959 when Castro and his forces take over the government of Nicaragua. That's important for half of the the story because in that half. Uh, Cuban cigars were still legal in the U.S., but you saw this, like you did in Nicaragua that I mentioned, you saw this mass exodus of landowners, of businessmen, of the wealthy who wanted to get out because, again, they're the first targets of communism and their their property is taken, their businesses are taken. So a lot of the very well-known um, Cuban cigar manufacturers, the blenders, the farmers, they, they left. Do you ever wonder if... I guess I don't know. This is probably a stupid question, but like if if the Cuban Revolution didn't did not happen, or if Castro was cooler, I guess. Like I just don't know how the. I'm always interested in seeing how like history would pan out, especially like I guess with the cigar history of it all. I know a lot more stuff is serious that happened there, but like what where do you think like we would be today? In at least from a cigar standpoint, to guess, I would say we would still see the development of cigars outside of Cuba because just like any industry, it's going to expand. I mean, you know, I mean, look at beers. You know, look at craft beer. They're they're made everywhere now. All these different companies, but and man, they would probably still be the same. I don't know, man. It's tough because so much of what establishes this industry in all these other countries, the DR, Honduras, Costa Rica, is what happened. In is what happened. It's it's because these guys, these professionals who come from you know hundreds of years, at least, you know, family lineage of growing tobacco and taking the seeds, all the seed varietals yeah. came from Cuba. So it's really hard to determine what the industry would look like. Obviously, Cubans would probably still be the most prevalent, but. I, I, and, would you see and, Hondurans, like Honduran you, I think you would or, see an industry. I yeah. think there would be people there. How good it would be, I don't know. 
because like I said, everything that the modern day manufacturer from Nick Melillo, uh, Placencia, Oliva, you know, all these guys is directly derived from people who came to Nicaragua, came to the DR, came to Honduras from Cuba, brought their seeds, brought their knowledge and, you know, had to adapt to the different environment, but already had a baseline as opposed to somebody who was just in Nicaragua. And, well, you know what? I want to grow cigar tobacco and they got to figure it out. You know, so uh, what the industry would look like? It's a really good question. I wanna, what, what was that? What was that show about? Like, if the Axis powers won World War II, they, they did a show. Uh, the uh, man and uh, and the the High Castle. Yes, yes, yes. Man, the High Castle. We need we need yeah. that movie, but about cigars. Yeah. Probably a lot a lot more low stakes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, it was just interesting. I think it's you know I'm, the development in every in anything or, or how how it would pan out. It would be interesting. I wonder just how, because to me it just seems like cigar, the cigar world is just so vast. You know, everyone from all over the different parts of the world are making it. What Cuba just dominated, and you know, and then yeah. you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't really have all these varieties of, you know, then you'd have a lot of solid cigar manufacturers and, and creators coming out of just one area instead of, you know. I think you might even see the the existence of a of a slightly larger. Um, American manufacturing footprint um, because, you know, we were, we were getting the tobacco from Cuba, but we were manufacturing here, you know, and Cubans, in, in Cuban Florida. cigars wouldn't be as, um, what's the word? Like a, a rarity or like a, a rare gem and, you know, like trying to, to get, to be that. honest, if, if, if we're taking anything that's currently happening into consideration, they probably would be more rare and maybe even less quality because you got to think they're already tough enough to like the rest of the world. They're already, they just had a massive price increase uh, worldwide, and um, you know they're they're low on stock on Cohiba. It's really hard to pump these things out, and that's without the biggest cigar demographic in the world by far, which is the United States. So they're already having trouble. So imagine adding several million yeah. more people to that yeah. which is why i definitely think there would have been an expansion outside of cuba uh but what that would have looked like without that situation i'm 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 not sure but somebody should write a book on it nick malillo should write a book on it nick should write a book on it so the cuban revolution happened so like i said in 59 the manufacturers leave the growers leave they take these seeds with them they they scatter dr uh jamaica honduras um but the next big part that really gave a push to this industry outside of Cuba was the embargo that was instituted in 1961. So between 59 and 61, you could still get Cuban cigars. John F. Kennedy was a big smoker of Cuban cigars. Everyone knows the story that he had um, Salinger, who I believe was his press secretary at the time. Right before he signed the embargo, he ran out and picked up 1,200 H. Upman Petite Coronas. And then immediately lit one up, and then he signed the embargo. So you start to see these guys scatter. Central and South America, some of them went to the Canary Islands, Spain. You know, they, they went all over the place. A lot of them, you know, the DR, which we talked about in our last episode, but then some started making their way to Nicaragua. The first, or, or at least the oldest continuous cigar factory in Nicaragua began in 1968, and that's the Hoya de Nicaragua factory. Now, the Hoya Classica, which is actually a brand you can now only buy from us, was, I don't know if it was the first, but I think it might be the first cigar to come out of there. Very mellow Connecticut shade wrapper. 
or I'm sorry, maybe an Ecuadorian Connecticut shade, but Nicaraguan filler. That cigar was actually a favorite of people uh, in the White House during the Nixon administration throughout the 70s. So you start to see this build. You know, Padron starts there. Uh, Arturo Fuente um, after... I got I don't know too much about the history of Fuente, but I know that they were originally based in Ybor City in Tampa, but I think that they had their facilities in Nicaragua up until the 70s. Gotcha. Sure that's what they that's where they were getting their stuff from. But then you have the Sandinista Revolution. And for everyone there who was, you know, from Cuba originally, they saw the writing on the wall. And in fact, I think it was either Padron or one of them, Padron or Hoya, the factory was burned down or was destroyed by like their own planes or something. So you see this scatter again. Um, Hoya goes right over the border into Honduras and tries to continue operation from there. Fuente, they leave, they go to the DR. I don't know what Padron did. How did Hoya de Nicaragua get, um, or Drew Estate acquire Hoya de Nicaragua? Or did they, they don't just acquire, acquire the, they're, 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 they're the main distributor. The main distributor. So okay, they have their own gotcha, factory, gotcha, their own blender, right. their own thing going on. They probably but utilize Drew distributes their, distributes cigar, them, gotcha, their, okay. their cigars. Yeah. So then there was a civil war throughout the 70s and the 80s. 1984, the U.S. imposes a, another embargo, this time on Nicaragua. So we're, we're starting to see a play-by-play, play, you know, an exact replay of what happened in Cuba. So during the 80s, not a good time for Nicaraguan cigars, specifically the ones that are going to the United States. However, in 1990, uh, the non-Sandinista government, but I think I'm pretty sure that their current president, who has won like a several times, I'm pretty sure he's related to, you know, he, he was part of the Sandinistas, but now they're having like general elections. He won in 1990, the embargo was lifted, and many of these companies were given their property back and they're given their factories back. Some returned, some didn't. So Padron, obviously, their operation has been in there since Hoya de Nicaragua. Um, Fuente went to the DR and they had already established there. And, and by 1990, they're already becoming this big, you know, behemoth. They already have the Hemingway, the Don Carlos. And they're in the probably in the early stages of trying to figure out how to do the Opus X, because Opus X came out in 93, I believe. So that's kind of how we get to the foundations of the Nicaraguan industry. Now, what we'll talk about Nicaraguan tobacco and, and the regions and what makes Nicaraguan cigars so popular. God, that's good. Yeah, there's four main regions, right? Yeah, so there's, there's four main regions, probably several smaller ones. There's Esteli, there's Condega, there's Yalapa, and there's Ometepe. Um, from people I have talked to, uh, people who have were you know from Cuba and Nicaragua, people who are, are have smoked several Cubans and and you know had examined soil samples and everything, um, Nicaragua lands the closest to the environment they were used to in Cuba. The other thing that Nicaragua provides is is different environments, and so like the soils are different. So Dominican filler, you know, maybe now they're really developing some hybrid stuff and different things, but Dominican filler, is, I don't want to say tastes the same, but there's a, there's a vast similarity to it. We're just, just in these four growing regions. And like I said, there's, there's probably a number of uh, smaller ones. You're getting vastly different tobaccos and the tobaccos you're getting, first of all, obviously were brought over from 
uh, from Cuba. So you have Corojo, you have Criollo. Um, Corojo is really established as it currently is in Honduras, but now a lot of people, you know, like uh, Tobacco Larry Picardo, obviously Aganorsa, a lot of people utilize uh, Perdomo, uh, utilizing Nicaraguan, Corojo, and Criollo tobaccos. So you have four regions. We'll start with Esteli. You know, you haven't been there yet, right? No, I'll gotta take you. Be nice. Esteli is a, a town up in up in the hills. Um, I think it's called uh the Diamond of the Sid Giovazzi or something like that. There's like a nickname for it. Up in the hills of it. it's about a three-hour drive from Managua, which is the capital. Um they only built the road like not too long ago. I'm, I'm guessing here, but like 20, 30 years. Like before that, it was like a helicopter ride to get there. And it's still a three hour drive on like one highway. It's very windy. You're in a bus. It's a crazy way to, to get there. What? Esteli is kind of the capital. It's, the, it's one of the largest cities in Nicaragua, but it's definitely the cigar capital. There's, you know, one road, you know, people are obviously scattered throughout the whole municipality, but there's one road where it's like my father, AJ, Perdomo, Drew Estate, like all within a couple, not their fields, but their, their, their factories. Factories, yeah. They have uh, uh, intramural baseball and softball leagues. We got to see one of the baseball, one of those, I think it was baseball game. That that was, and the stadium was beautiful, like beautiful, like, oh my God, they kept the grass. Everything was nice, except they almost, they did try to kill the umpire on a bad call. Um, and we had to leave, (laughs) but, and they had beautiful uniform, like really well-made uniforms. And we were watching like Hoya against Perdomo. It's really cool to see Placencia was playing. Um, and the, the vibe in SLE is really, really cool because, you know, they don't look at us like tourists you know, like, you know, fat Americans, you know, and you go to Tokyo and there's like, look at these jabronis, you know, getting in the way. But there, you know, cigar tourism is a thing, uh, but it's not something that your average everyday cigar smoker is going to do. It takes a passion. You know, you really appreciate and love the product. And because of that, they, you know, the, the, the local, first of all, there's some of the nicest people I've ever met. Some of the happiest people I've ever met. In fact, I want to say, and I don't know which Nick told me this. One of the Nicks, either Perdomo or Malolo. Um, Nicaraguans have one of the highest rates of like return citizenship. So people will come to America to find work and then realize that they're just not, even if they're making more money, they're, they're just, just not, not happy, happy and they yeah. come back to Nicaragua. So they're very happy. They have a great culture, um, great food. So, but Esteli is like the center of this. This is where a majority of the tobacco is grown. Um, it has a hard black soil, gets a lot of sunlight. It does, it gets warm in Esteli. Um, and you're going to get a heavier, full flavored tobacco from Esteli. So, a lot of nice aromas. Um, if you use certain seed varieties, it can be, you can get a nice spice to it. So, Esteli is the, is the heart. Um, I don't know how much wrapper is grown in Esteli. Uh, to be honest, if I had to guess the order in which rap, like, you know, countries that produce the most rapper, it probably is Ecuador, then the US, and then, then maybe Nicaragua, then Cameroon, then uh, no, uh, Nicaragua and Honduras are probably close. Yeah. Nicaragua is probably more now, but Nicaragua, Honduras, Cameroon, and then probably um, 
the DR. There's not a lot of we, which we talked about in the last this, episode. This may not be a question pertaining to like I guess Nicaragua per se, but I'll, I'll try and tie it into it. You say like there's a row of factories there, you know, from anywhere from like you know Foundation or or, or Perdomo, Drew State. Mm-hmm. Is it like like let's say us three, right? One of us goes somewhere to go to a country to grow something. Is it like word of mouth? Is it just well known that Nicaragua is the best, or do these do these cigar manufacturers are like, all right, I want to, I guess does how like, does the reputation grow? Well, is that, that but also is like, I guess if they're making a cigar with Nicaraguan tobacco, they're obviously, and that's from like the the inception of the idea of a cigar. You know, do they go there? Do they, you know, do they hop from country to country to get these different variety of well, tobaccos? I, th- I think now, um, because of how established the industry is in some countries, you want to put your your kind of headquarters in a place where it's sustainable. There's other, you know, like like uh, a lot of the like cigar rings or the box making facilities that you know for several different companies, you know, they'll they'll have a, an office in Esteli. You know, like so you go there for that. But in terms of the tobacco, you know, you got to remember not every manufacturer has their own fields. In fact, very few of them do. Gotcha. Um I, I don't want to say very few. Uh, you know, like the big ones definitely do. Perdomo is is totally on his own except for I think he gets his Ecuadorian wrapper somewhere else. And you were saying back in the day too or a while ago that like guys like Jonathan Drew and Nick Melillo like they went there to like learn like yeah, what John, it was like when they were in their early 20s. Like they worked in the factories, like mopping it and they built their way up. Yeah. John, John and Nick, uh, both like, li- you know, Nick's, Nick lived there. Uh, so did John. Did, for, wasn't for Nick years. living there during, during like the peak of COVID when we were doing videos or no? Yeah. yeah I don't, I don't know if he has a house down there. Oh, okay. He rented a place, but like, so his headquarters is in Connecticut, but he was down there for like a majority of COVID. Yeah. I don't know if he got stuck down there. If he's like, listen, if I, you know, I'm not, it's not like I'm going to be doing events. Any of my business type work, it's, I can get done from down here. Yeah. But now I can also keep an eye on production. I can work yeah. on blends. You know, that was one of the 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 troubles with that that Steve Saka had is you know when we were working on our 50th, he's like, listen, I I got something for you, but I have to get to Nicaragua to finish it, and he couldn't get there for like a year. You know, he was stuck up here. So very much the same way. Whereas uh, if me and you just started a cigar company, let's say we would probably put our office just in Miami because there's resources yeah. there. There's other people that can help with shipping. You know, there you know taxes, all this stuff. Um, and the and you you if you don't have your own fields, and even if you have your own fields, you're still there's there's some people who are almost totally insulated. Um, I want to say Agonorsa might be one of them, Perdomo to a large extent. Um, but then there's other people who utilize brokers, you know, they get almost all their tobacco from yes. tobacco brokers. Uh, the Oliva, not Oliva Cigars, there's a different Oliva family that is one of the biggest tobacco brokers where they they have fields everywhere or at least they procure the tobacco and then you buy it from them. Uh, so having these, you know, this industry in place, you know, even if you, even if you want to make a cigar that's using Honduran, Costa Rican and Peruvian tobacco – Having your facility in a place where there is a standing industry, there's easy ways to get it out. You can, you know, and everyone's kind of friendly. If you need to get a shipment out and one guy has a trailer that's only half filled, you can make a deal with, hey, let me, can I get my stuff sent to, you know, just, just going to a place that already has an established, uh, like these um, logistical issues uh, is just probably much easier. So, like I said, Esteli is, is, is the home to a lot of these places, Um 
and they also grow do a, a fair, very fair amount of growing there as well. Um, next is Condega, which is uh, the Condega Valley, which is north of Esteli. It's got rocky soil. Um, the tobacco is mostly sun-grown, um, and it's a thinner leaf. So it's you. It's mostly used as filler. Uh, very rarely are you seeing it utilized as um, binders or wrappers, but the wrappers that do come out of there um, have a lot of nice color, a lot of nice texture, and a lot of nice flavor. So fuller-bodied, more on the sweet, spicy side, uh, some nice earthy tones, what you get from Condega, a lot, a lot of earth, earthy richness. I... I if I had to compare it to something, I would say a lot of the good tobacco I've tasted out of Honduras is similar. And then when you think about it, Condega is north of Esteli. Honduras is also north of Nicaragua. So it's much closer to Honduras. And so probably shares characteristics of that sweet, sweet spicy, earthy tones. Mm. Then you get to... Um, what is one of my favorite regions. And it was actually the, the mother church and the mother church and Naganors is what really, you know, but you are made you fall sold, me, this, sold yeah. me on this, which is uh Yalapa, which is even more north. It's actually along the border of Honduras at the bottom of a mountain range. Um, very fertile soil, red clay. So if, if you've ever seen the Davidoff Yamasa, I was just about is, to ask that. that, that went, that's Dominican. It, okay. But, uh, it has a signature redness to the soil. And in fact, uh, the last trade show that me and Greg went about to, to mention that, they yeah. set up these really cool booths where they basically had like uh, an experience for yeah. each one of their of their black uh, their black labels. Which I remember is, editing uh, that. Yeah. I was like, man, that looks really like, yeah. Cool. So they had the, that was very very new. They had the Davidoff yeah. Nicaragua. They had the Davidoff Yamasa, and then they had the Davidoff Escudio. Um, and each one was like a different experience. Like the Nicaragua, I can't remember what the Nicaraguan one was, but the Yamasa, they basically like recreated this field and they had the clay there mm-hmm. and the tobacco. Then the Escurio was like a Brazilian nightclub. They had a drink. Uh, me and Greg had a couple. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Yalapa has this signature red clay, which it's really famous for. And in terms of flavor, I want to say that at least in my experience, and I could be wrong, you know, when, when we have one of the experts on, they can definitely put me to task when it comes to this. But I want to say Yalapa has the most definitive flavor notes. And what I mean by that is a lot of similarity in the flavors that you get from Yalapa tobacco. Um, and I can pick up on it. You know, if, if something has a Corojo 99, you know, Yalapa, you know, grown in Yalapa, I can kind of figure out what it's going to taste like. Uh, Pretty pretty regularly, um, and even even it says in our in our notes that we took here um, tends to be on, more on the mild side uh, in terms of its strength, but full body so full fla- full flavored, um, smooth, and it has that natural sweetness. Now that's what I've talked about that a lot when it comes to Agonorsa, you know, Illusione, Warped, uh, the Mother Church. This natural tobacco sweetness, not a sweetness like you would find in a broadleaf or a Maduro or something that's infused, just this natural, kind of like the same thing with like you would get with a whiskey when you taste a whiskey and it has like a, just a natural sweetness to it. That's what I find in the tobacco from Yalapa. Um, a lot of wrapper is produced in Yalapa. I want to dive more in, not specifically into Yalapa, but I want, I would like to dive in with somebody, you know, like a Nick or like a Dion, one of these, you know, uh, these geniuses, uh, a Nestor Placencia and find out, what and obviously I know what tobacco 
what the tobacco needs to be to be utilized as wrapper, where it needs to be plucked, what it needs to look like, you know, how many veins. I, I know all that, but I'm curious as to what what environment needs to exist for proper wrapper to be cultivated. Now, is it the environment or is it the people utilizing it? Because one of the criticisms of, criticisms I've heard about the Dominican Republic is not so much they can't grow it, but they don't know how to properly ferment it, yeah. cut it, like this, you know, utilize it. And so that, and that's at least what I've heard. So I'm it could guessing, be total BS. Again, sorry if these questions are stupid or whatever, but, you know. There's the, no such the, thing as a stupid question, Chris. Stupid Only stupid people. Exactly. The tobacco, you know, so you're telling me, obviously, it's different. Now you're telling me. <laughs> tobacco, you know, when you're growing the tobacco plant, you're telling me when someone, I guess, I don't know if the right word is pluck the plant or get the plant. They can yeah, they get easily it. They get it. They can easily mess that. Like someone, like oh yeah, can easily mess that up if they don't properly. Yeah. So how much of like the your, actual tobacco plant? Look yeah. at your cigar. Look at that wrapper. That had to pass through three hundred hands. Shout out to Southern Draw for, but that that was taken off of a plant that was just grown in a field. Then it was. Put into so the, the majority then it was, of then it like, was cured in a barn. Okay. Then it was taken somewhere else and it was fermented. Then it was taken somewhere else and aged. Then it was rolled. It was pressed. It was let to sit even yeah. more. The the amount and, and then look at how beautiful yeah. that looks. And that's that the thing. Takes, I don't think a lot of people, including gotta, myself, yeah. know how many <laughs> each cigar. How many people? How many people has to go through to make it look and taste and. So yeah, but it's a it's a it's a process. And so the soils have to have a big part in it. Even yeah, the like nutrients the, even at the, the soil. end of it all, like the soil yeah. really has. A, yeah, the okay. nutrient. Well, for, first you need to find fertile soil that's going to be able to to grow. But then the the best way to explain soil is take take Ecuadorian shade and Connecticut shade to the to the average person. They might be like, oh, they're similar. They're no, really not. No. Um, and I can I can pick one out of a lineup, like the difference between the two, pretty can quick. How, like, what's Ecuadorian it? is a lot lighter yeah. in color and in flavor. Connecticut. So compare, um, and maybe we can try to pull it up on the screen. Um, but compare like the Monte Cristo original, the regular brown labeled yeah. Monte Cristo. Compare that to Monte Cristo White series. Monte Cristo original uses Connecticut shade. Monte Cristo White Series uses Ecuadorian Connecticut, significantly lighter, different different flavor notes. They're, is they're Ecuadorian in the same, sweeter, or would it? Would, uh, I would just say it's it's just mo mellower gotcha. and, and not. I don't want to say smoother because that connotates that the regular Connecticut is yeah. is not smooth, but it's I just just cleaner. There's not a lot going on. That's why when somebody makes something with Ecuadorian Connecticut, you really got to utilize the right binder, the right fillers to bring out. A lot more flavor with, but you can't go go crazy with it, you know. But a Connecticut shade, again, still mellow. You're gonna get some similar flavor notes, but you're gonna get a, a lot more of them. It's definitely a little darker, not dark, but it's definitely darker. And like I said, by you smoke a Monte Cristo classic or a Monte Cristo original, and then smoke a Monte Cristo white, you know they utilize a lot of the same filler and binders. You know these Dominican filler and binders. But the wrappers are offering you, you you would know you're smoking something different. You would definitely know this is a different thing going on here. Um, so that's that's my example of how, and that's the same seed. You're taking the same seed and you're just growing it someplace else. 
uh, Pennsylvania broadleaf versus Connecticut broadleaf. You know, Pennsylvania again, a lot of Which similarities. Are both in the northern, you know, yeah, a lot of similarities. Dark, rich, heavy. Pennsylvania broadleaf, a lot more smoke, a lot heavier. Connecticut is a lot sweeter. At least, in, again, this and is I'm all assuming you can't grow tobacco all year. Can you grow tobacco all year round? In, in that Nicaragua? is a question that I should definitely know, and I've been pondering that for years. Because I'm, there is you, a growing season. Yeah, because you can't grow. I'm assuming you can't grow tobacco up here. Obviously, mm. f- what from November to March, November. There to is April? a there is a growing season. Now, what I don't know is that if they have the availability to grow in the off season, because like. Fuente does that on a on a much smaller scale, like with their Lost City, is that that acreage that's just for the tobacco use for the Opus X Lost City, they grew that in the off season to make the that movie which we've talked about the Lost City movie yes, with Andy Garcia. Yeah. So so they alternate between like they have their regular grow and then they do that. So I'm guessing the weather. I mean I don't think it ever really gets cold in Nicaragua. I don't think you're getting to the 50s. Um, maybe I don't know. I but I doubt it. Um, in terms of agriculture. You don't want to. I think you don't want to keep growing. I feel like that would wear the soil out. I think you need to give it a respite, and you need to put stuff in it to to you know. Can you look up the growing season in in Nicaragua and also how cold it would get? So the hottest month is April. This is based on reports collected between eighty five and two thousand fifteen. Hottest month was April with an average of eighty five. Coldest month was January with an average of eighty. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So that's that October they, to June. Yeah. So they don't grow it when it's really hot. Uh, you know, I mean, you don't want. I mean, listen, an, ex- an extreme anything is not good for yeah. stuff. That sounds like a very generic statement. No, no. But extreme. I mean, even when you're maintaining your own cigars, uh, more humidity is not better. In fact, it's probably worse. You can bring a dry cigar back if a cigar yeah. is too moist and it's soggy oh, and wet. Yeah, we've had that <laughs> mold. Yeah, it's very, very hard to bring that cigar back. So from June or July till September is that when they're, I guess, creating the? I mean, that's probably when they're curing. I mean, the, the, okay. the curing and fermenting takes a few months. You got to put in the polones. Um, I think they they do that for several weeks at least, maybe even maybe a couple months. I can't remember. I I, I have all this written down somewhere. Yeah, I don't know. I, I need to ask somebody that question because I I I've been to these factories and I should have you know I, and I paid attention, but that was always something where I was like, can you guys grow all year round? I would imagine that for the soil, it's probably not good yeah. to constantly grow. And as soon as you take stuff out, just plant new stuff. I'm sure it's not good yeah. for the soil. You need to give it a break. You need to you know, rehydrate, whatever the term might be, but I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe it's good for the soil to keep, keep growing. I don't know. I honestly do not know. Um, so that's something when I get one of the, uh, one of our experts on here, we'll, uh, we'll talk about. Um, but yeah, Yalapa is, is in, in my mind, that's my favorite growing region. It produces personally my favorite tobacco signature sweetness. Um, Aganorsa utilizes a lot of Yalapa, um, every, every time we talk to, uh, to Terrence and we ask him about the blend or, uh, Dion as well. Yeah. Dion uses a lot of tobacco from Yalapa. Um, the, the last place in terms of the four major growing, and I know there's other growing, there's Pueblo Nueva, there's, there's other growing regions, but these are the four main ones, um, is Ometepe, which I feel like is recent to the cigar scene. Um, they probably utilize tobacco in it for a number of years, but in terms of, um, yeah, when I first discovered Ometepe and that um, the aging room bean number two, <laughs> and they, you know, shout out to my boy Rafael Nadal. It's an island that was 
you know, created by <laughs> twin volcanoes. Um, and I was like, wait, they're growing on volcanoes. That's probably really, really hot, you know, really, really hot. But I thought that was really interesting. You know, someone who's very green and new to all this, I was like, you can grow stuff there. And I, and w wasn't there something at IPCPR when, when you went like that was also showing this, was that in the Davidoff, Davidoff no, no, tent no, no, no. or that? No, no. Um, so Ometepe, so yeah, you would think it'd be too hot, but you got to remember one of the volcanoes, I believe it's the uh, Concepcion volcano, is still active. I think it actually, I'm pretty sure there was an eruption like right before I was there the last time. Like a, like a couple, like it, there was still like, they, they were, we, we drove by it. It was actually, it was my, you know how Facebook, you have like your profile picture, then like that yeah. other one. I think I still have that picture of the volcano. Um, but it was really Was it wild? It was, it, was, it was crazy. It was crazy. Um, but from what I gather so and please guys bear with me i am not in any way an agricultural expert um i'm not even close it's probably one of the things i know least about is like science and plants and earth but similarly to how it's it's good for the forest to sometimes like the little wildfire yes. yeah. burn because it'll burn the plant life, but then that plant life like kind of seeps yeah. back into the soil and can reinvigorate it yeah, i'm say assuming forest fires are yeah yeah I'm assuming that's what you're getting with this ash, with this volcanic ash from the Isle of Ometepe, because it's a, it's not a dry environment. Nicaragua is not dry; it's humid. Um, it's base, it's it's by Lake Nicaragua, so there's there's water. Is it humid there. all year round too? I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay, yeah. yeah, dude. If it's 80 in yeah. January, and it, and yeah, it ain't true, a dry heat, true. you know, and anything Central South America is going to be yeah. hot and hot. Um, but so Lake Nicaragua is there. So when you have a lake and you have humidity, I mean, it's it's already sustainable for plant life it's not a desert you know you can grow things there so what i'm assuming is with this soil is that when the volcano again if there's any volcanologists is that a term i don't know justin can you look up what is a guy who studies volcanoes pierce brosnan tommy lee jones tommy lee jones and actually i don't even think he was a volcano i think he was just a, i think he was like a city engineer <laughs> Who just got thrown into the middle of this? <laughs> seismologist or seismologist? Can you just find out? I mean, you probably find on the Wikipedia page. What was Tommy Lee Jones's job in Volcano? This is an important question for this episode. I need to find out what was Tommy Lee Jones's job in Volcano. I he worked for the city. He was not a guy. He was not an expert in Volcano. That was Anne Hesh. Or Heche. And Heche was like a volcano. She was a seismologist. But Tommy Lee Jones was a... Okay, yeah, he was like a FEMA. He was like a FEMA guy. All right. Uh, so, again, going back to the plants. What, so what I assume is that there's, you know, that's soil because of the volcanic activity and the ash and the fact that it's already kind of suitable for growing, I would assume, and again, probably wrong, that the, 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 the burning and then the reinvigorating is what makes the soil special, what makes it viable for uh, tobacco growing. Because um, according to my notes here, soil is exceptionally fertile, allowing for the ideal conditions to grow tobacco. So uh, I guess I am a seismologist. You are. Mm. And we can make volcano too now. 
volcano or volcano or <laughs> the volcanist. Um, <laughs> so one thing about Ometepe and uh, this is Ometepe you can find in um, aging room bin number two is like the big one that I know. It's, it's in a lot of cigars, but um, uh, the bin number two aging room is like the big one that I know. I don't want to mention it, but we, we have something very special in the next few months that's being made for us that utilizes Ometepe. We'll get to that. Uh, that's going to be a good one to focus on uh, volcanism. Yeah. And or uh, volcanism? Is the person we're working with, are they, you know, all... Uh, no, they're all about it. They're all about seismologist it. Seismologists as well. Yeah, they're, they're a seismologist. Hopefully, uh, my future girlfriend's not a seismologist, if you get what I mean. But a boom. <laughs> There's a joke for you, Justin, to leave in. He has no idea. I don't like when he's normal. It makes me think that he's sick. Yeah, there needs to be a, there needs to be a good balance of crazy Justin and normal Justin. Can't you... Harder than hell. There he is. Um, so yeah, very fertile, but it has a very powerful flavor. So you do not want to utilize, like you know, there's certain tobaccos that you can kind of utilize almost throughout. Um, you know, not not often is there a crossover between what you would want to use as a filler, binder, and wrapper. But sometimes it can work out. But you, like you don't want a, a cigar that's pure, like uses a lot of the same thing. You don't want to use. Like a ton of Medio Tiempo, which is the top of the tobacco plant, or a ton of Lajero, which is going to overpower the blend. Um, I was just talking to John Huber about this. And, you know, even in certain wrappers, you want to, certain wrappers work better in a thicker ring gauge because the flavor of that wrapper is so dominant that you want more filler and binder to kind of round it out and balance it out. So that's what you get with um, Ometepe tobacco. Uh, it can be sweet. But it's heavy. It's got a smokiness to it, to you know, which which kind of ties really well into like the whole volcano thing. Um, what's cool also is you know, Lake, it's it's you know, Lake Nicaragua is over there, and then I haven't been to the city yet, but I want to go to this city, the city of Grenada, not the Grenada that we that we invaded, not the one that John Turturro invaded. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, yeah, oh, was that anger, was that, every time I hear that, was that anger, anger management? management. Yeah. Grenada. Wasn't that like 12 hours long? Yeah. No, Gaz is a different Grenada. My buddy went to medical school in Grenada, actually. Really? Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's fine. Um, but the city of Grenada in Nicaragua is very uh, European, very like heavy Spanish influence, like the red tile roofs. Like it's a very. Um, not midi, like 15th, it has a 15th century or to, you know, like, like a, a, an older feeling to it. Like it's like a historical district. It has that feeling. I'll show you, we can maybe post a picture up here of, of what Grenada Nicaragua looks like. Um, so let's just finish up by talking about some of the, some of the brands. Um, you know, obviously like we talked about Padron and Hoya de Nicaragua or some of the first Fuente was there before they moved on to the DR. Um, but since this explosion of Nicaraguan cigars over the past 20 years, um, a lot a lot having to do with the country itself and the versatility of its tobacco, but also having to do with the brands that were there and the excellence they were showcasing. I mean, if you wanted to start a company, you know, in 2011, you look towards, well, what, you know, what are the best cigars right now? And you're getting very high ratings from Padron, very high ratings from Oliva. And so that's where a lot of people flocked to there. And because it wasn't as built up in terms of the industry as the DR was at the, you know, 2010, 2005, you know, the DR was dominating the industry, you know, 
it's a, it's slim pickings in Nicaragua at the time. So Perdomo goes there. That's where he starts. Jonathan Drew goes there. That's where he, well, he actually technically started in New York city, but he, he goes yeah. there. Um, my father, you know, coming right from Cuba, started, had, had a factory in Miami utilizing a lot of different tobaccos, including Nicaraguan. He goes there. Um, Fuente actually, I, I think they might've finished it, but I know that they were building, they're building a facility back in Nicaragua now. Because of all the things we talked about, because of the, the soil, the flavors, the versatility of what you can do, and also having this, uh, it's also, it's a bigger country than the DR, so you're not stepping on anybody's toes. It's not, you know, and, and uh, the DR, don't forget, the DR is only half of that already small island. So um, you just have a lot more room to play with. Uh, and having that support structure in place with the already existing industry just makes it, I mean, like their imports this year, I want to say that they were double of the Dominican. Like there were millions, hundreds of millions of cigars came in from Nicaragua this year. And every time I see a new company pop up, they're usually starting in Nicaragua or they're going yeah. to, they're going to a current Nicaragua manufacturer. Um, Ernesto Perez Carrillo, who has been, you know, he was very well known as a Dominican cigar manufacturer from his La Gloria days in El Cordito. Um, and his factory still is in the DR, but all of the, the cigars that he just got rated for, the La Historia, the Encore, the Pledge, uh, were all mostly Nicaraguan blends. So you're starting to see Nicaraguans even playing into, and like I said, Fuente as well. So there is our kind of minimalized history of the cigar industry in Nicaragua. Um, what I want to do is add like an addendum to these, like a part two for each one where we bring in um, like an expert yeah. on Nicaragua, an expert on the DR and I'm have just them here kind of asking questions because yeah. I still have a lot to learn. But I, mean, I think the just... history, the history, the brief history of these, you know, the Nicaraguan tobacco and, and Dominican, I think it, it's important to know. So you kind of know like the history of. Of the cigars you're smoking. Yeah, it gives you, you know? a greater appreciation. You know, I'm sitting here thinking like, yeah, just how much love and care, I guess, go into each cigar, really. Like, or you, you'd think so. It's just, it, it, it take, you know, I, you don't want to take it for granted. Like, now I feel like I got to smoke every- Take it for granted? Every, take it for granted. Granite? Granted. Oh. Not granite. So you're not taking a shoot on. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I don't want, I don't I want to take it from smoke every cigar down to the nub now because it's like, oh man, I don't want to waste anything. Yeah. But yeah, that, and that's wild. what it is. That's 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 our main goal is to just share our appreciation of the product. We're not just trying to to sell here. We want to we want to share, and then we want to get people on the show that share with you as well. I think Nick would be great for Nick. He's even though he's born and he's an Italian from Connecticut, he's very ingrained in Nicaraguan culture. Uh, has such a deep love and passion. And also he has like a history mind. So he probably knows a lot of mm -hmm. the history. I mean, look at El Wednesday, for example. Um, so there you have it. Thank you guys very much for watching or listening. Make sure to check out our Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok page. Um, YouTube, we posted a little thing. We're we're figuring out how to come back from that. It's going to be end up being a little different, but we're going to figure it out. Yep. But we're here on Spotify. We're on Apple. We're on we're Anchor. Anywhere you listen to podcasts, we are there. So thank you very much, and we will catch you next time. Thank you, guys.